Welcome to Behavioral Science Uncovered, the podcast about behavioral science and how it is made. Okay, a very good morning, afternoon, or evening to all of you listeners here on Behavioral Science Uncovered. It's great to have you tuning in to today's podcast, which will be centered on whether individuals have preferences for telling the truth. My name is Matthew Henderson, and I'll be your host today. I'm fortunate enough to be joined today by Johannes Abler of Oxford University and Daniela Nocenso of Nottingham University. It's a pleasure to have you both here on the podcast this morning. Thank you very much for giving your time to both myself and to our listeners today. Thank you. Thank you. Turning now to your paper, Preferences for Truth-Telling. For those listeners who haven't yet read your paper, well, firstly, you should go away and read the paper. It's great. But can you briefly summarize what it's all about? Yeah, so um, so the main idea of the paper is to try to understand how uh, individuals report private information and uh, uh, understand, you know, the behavioral patterns that emerge in this type of situations and uh, um, the motivations that uh, that uh, underlie this type of behaviors. So the you know standard economic theory would predict that uh, reports of private information follow um, you know own own pro- own profit maximization. So individuals would report whatever is most convenient for their own uh, self-interest. And in many applications, this often means uh, that uh, reports will deviate from the truth. So individuals will misreport the private information. Um, but in contrast to this prediction, like we've seen in recent years, uh, accumulating quite a lot of evidence that shows that actually there seems to be quite a lot of uh, truth telling uh, when uh, individuals are asked to report information that they only themselves know in settings where they cannot be monitored or found to tell, tell a lie. Um, so the starting point of the paper really was the observation of uh, this contrast between standard theory and empirical evidence. And um, we then decided to do three things uh, in this topic. So the first thing is sort of consolidate all this evidence that was scattered around uh, really a, literally a hundred of uh, uh, you know, empirical studies. Most of these were experimental studies. Um, and uh, so we consolidated this evidence by conducting a meta-study, a meta-analysis of this data, um, trying to reconstruct the stylized uh, facts that uh, can describe or characterize truth-telling behavior. So uh, how do people typically behave in these type of situations? What are the behavioral regularities that emerge? The second thing we did is trying to explain these regularities. So we uh, used theory uh, and uh, we uh, sort of co- constructed and formalized uh, uh, a series of explanations that had been offered in terms of product telling behavior uh, and, uh, uh, and derived predictions about how these different models uh, predicted about uh, behavior in these situations. And uh, the third step was to test or compare the empirical evidence uh, with uh, the theoretical predictions. And so for that, we used partly the data from the meta-study and partly new experiments that we designed to test specific predictions made by specific models. And so in this um, sort of uh, um, 
different uh, angles or approaches uh, to, to, the, to the problem, uh, our main result is that uh, uh, truth-telling behavior can be explained. First of all, there is a lot of truth-telling behavior, much more than what standard economic theory would, uh, would predict. And second, uh, sort of the, the main behavioral forces that drive uh, truth-telling behavior are, on the one hand, an intrinsic preference for telling the truth. So if you like, uh, uh, there's a cost associated, an intrinsic cost associated with misreporting um, information, which you know is false. And the second force instead is a reputational force. So you, you care about uh, not being perceived as a liar. And so um, this is another powerful motivation that keeps you telling the truth. So I guess the, the first thing for our listeners to note is that um, some of these results you described, such as um, people not lying maximally, you can find some of these results on the website, preferencesfortruthtelling.com. So our listeners can go away. There are some lovely data visualizations which have been drawn up, which kind of uh, uh, demonstrate some of the author's results. So that's something that I, uh, I highly advise you go away and do, especially if you don't have time to kind of engage with the full paper. So to, to kind of go from the beginning, you said that there were uh, irregularities that were spotted in the literature. And so I I'm just thinking about now the sort of creative process that goes into writing a paper. I suppose the nature of creativity is such that it comes in unpredictable leaps and bounds, and it's not necessarily there on demand, which I guess is one of the reasons why prospective PhD students need to write a research proposal before being selected for their course. So I'm wondering kind of really where you source the ideas for the paper and how what, what your creative process looked like in general in the uh, beginning stages of this paper? So, um, so looking at this, uh, at the, this lying literature, um, there were, at the beginning there were quite a lot of experimental papers, often using this die rolling paradigm uh, that was introduced by, it was Fischbacher and Franziska Fermi-Hoysi. So it's a very simple experiment, which we also use, um, where people roll a die in private, um, and then they report whatever they whatever they rolled, and then the experimenter pays them whatever they report. So they, you can make more money if you report a six, even though you didn't roll perhaps a six. So there's a chance of lying here, and we can indirectly infer whether people lied by looking at the distribution. And so this experiment has been has been used quite um, around the world, and that forms the base for the meta study. But many of these papers didn't really use theory or didn't really think about general ways how to explain uh, behavior. They document behavior, and this is very important papers, and we learn a lot from them. Um, but the starting point to, to our project was to say, can we write down a utility function in technical terms or in more general terms, what drives behavior in these settings? And then it was really not a straightforward way, but sort of saying, oh, well, we could Let's write down some models. What could be an explanation, and then look at compare those models to the data. Um, but I totally agree with what you say about creativity. Um, that this research project, much like probably almost all research projects, aren't, wasn't very linear in a way. Is that you you start in one way, and then you turn a little bit, and you go in a different way, and um, and that's how then the the final product um, develops, the final paper develops. I suppose when it comes to um, spotting the existing holes in the literature, looking at this FFH paradigm that you mentioned, 
I'm wondering at, at, at what point in this research process did it become collaborative? So throughout my educational journey, I've necessarily had to author all of my research projects by myself because, you know, they, they have a word for undergraduates or master students who collaborate with others when they're writing their dissertations. And uh, it's called cheating. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm very curious about the origins of your uh, collaborative research process. So throughout the uh, sort of roadmap you gave me of uh, conducting the meta study, providing theoretical reasons, writing down the utility function, and then um, doing your own experimental tests. At, at what point did you get together with each other and with your co-author Colin Raymond and also do you have any tips on how to form successful uh, co-authorships in general? Uh, yeah so I, I at the beginning I worked on this by myself on this broad question about sort of what drives behavior but then I I did have some experiments and some some model but it didn't really go anywhere and uh, and I, I knew I wanted to change course and sort of broaden it up and then I asked Daniela whom I knew from Nottingham uh, I used to work in Nottingham I, and I asked Colin, who was in Oxford back then um, and is now in the States, um, again, whether we could join forces. And that really changed the entire project. The project changed quite a lot. I think the, the only thing that remained from the original sort of core project was the overall research question. But how we addressed it was uh, is, is very much came out of the collaboration of the of the three of us. How we choose co-authors is, is, is really difficult. I mean, I knew Daniela. And Colin both personally. I think Daniela and Colin didn't know each other, um, so they had to trust had to trust me. Um, but I think it worked out very very well. Actually, I think Daniela and Colin never met in person, only via Skype, before we submitted the paper. So like over for one and a half years or two years, I think they never met in 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 real life. It's a bit like oh, during okay. the lockdown, really. <laughs> we, we met the day before receiving a revised and resubmit from Econometrica. So it was. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yes. Wow. Yeah, I suppose you're you're, you're very ready for the uh, post-COVID world we're going to find ourselves in. Yeah. So you're kind of one, one step ahead there. I think lots of researchers work remotely because, um, I mean, some people have co-authors locally, uh, but every, everybody else has to work remotely anyway. And um, and then people move around. And even if you start local, uh, local collaborations and people move away, um, and then once you've established a co-authorship, like Daniela and me with several projects, and you think you see that it works quite well, then even if someone moves away, then you want to continue that. So I think, um, yeah, so the lockdown hasn't changed my research life very much. It has changed quite a lot of things in my life otherwise, yes. Um, yeah, I think another aspect about the co-authorship, I think complementarities are quite important. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, for example, in this case, uh, Colin is much more theory-oriented, so clearly was a major force um, in developing the theories. Um, so I have more expertise in experimental design. So it's, uh, it's um, and Johannes as well, so it's, it's, that's also quite important, you know, trying to find the different, uh, different yeah, strengths that, uh, of course, can bring the paper to, to, to another level than, than if you could do it yourself. But the otherwise, it's quite difficult to find what, you know, to know exactly whether someone will be a good co-author if you don't know them personally. Um, so it's, it's very hard to tell. You were talking about these complementarities. Uh, Johannes, I know you've written previous papers on truth-telling, and Daniela, I see you've authored several papers on 
identifying social norms, peer effects, uh, and social comparison modeling. And these uh, elements also feature in this paper. So along with Colin Brayman, who you mentioned is a more of a theorist, how did you kind of divide tasks among yourselves according to these research uh, specialisms? Yeah, it, I mean, quite natural in the sense of um, what we had most expertise on prior, but uh, although it's been a very collaborative project, I have to say, but, you know, Colin was the main sort of the driving force behind the, the theory parts. I sort of took more the lead on the experimental part, you on the meta-analysis, so that's how more or less how we started the uh, working on 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 the initial phase of the paper, but uh, after that, I think uh, there was lots of collaborations. Uh, partly because of the nature of the pro the project, you know, the the experiments were designed based on the theory results. The theory analysis was based partly on what we knew from the meta analysis. So there's uh, of course lots of overlaps in in the three components of the paper, and you know all the writing, uh, um, presentations, and everything has been very collaborative. So, yeah, probably as, yeah, one of the most collaborative projects perhaps in, that I took part in. Yeah, I agree. I don't think there's sort of, there was, nobody did anything, any part of the paper wasn't done by one, just one person. I think to some extent we all worked on all of them uh, and then someone took the lead in some directions, but um, yeah. It was very, I think it worked quite well in this paper. It doesn't always work quite well, no. um, partly because of the project, partly because of the people, but I think this one worked out quite nicely. No. So since since you talked about the lockdown, I think sort of uh, research, um, being a PhD student or professor can often be very lonely um, because you sit in your office for hours, for weeks, for months, um, and I think working with others together makes it a little bit less lonely. So even if they're not in the same country, uh, but it does make it less lonely. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I wonder actually, how um, does does working with others also mean that you're perhaps able to strike a better work-life balance? So you know, I mean, I've I've recently heard of some uh, faculties that will shut off the Wi-Fi in in their department after 11 p.m. to get researchers to take a break. And I feel as though, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe sometimes if you're working as a bit of a one-man army, you know, you can uh, consider the counterfactual. Ah, oh, what if what if I just stared at that proof for another 20 minutes? So did you find that you could kind of um, help each other to strike a better balance in research? What I see mostly is that co-author papers just become bigger. Um, I mean, this paper is 150 pages long and it has uh, 2,000 people in sort of in the in our lab experiments, has 60 pages of proofs, um, is sort of, it's, it's, it's perhaps too big for one person to do. Um, but in a sense, being three of us, instead of just saying, oh, here's a 20 page paper, well, we could take it easy. I think we just um, expanded it. Um, I think that's, and because the sort of the move in, in economics or part, partly the move is towards these bigger projects, uh, which then almost necessitate um, having more co-authors or more RAs or in, in general, a bigger team. In, indeed, uh, I, I feel your, your uh, online appendix is perhaps twice the length of the main body of your text. <laughs> and yeah. so I'm, I'm also wondering, uh, an interesting angle is, um, at what point do you kind of decide that your paper's done? At, at what point do you say, I think this is good enough for publication? Because I feel as though since, I guess, the nature of research is that you, you are your own boss. And so you decide when, when the delivery date is. So kind of how, how did you go about working out that, okay, we've tested a large enough set of models now and um, the paper's ready for publication? Yeah, when we 
didn't have the strength to read the appendix anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, uh, um, yeah, it, 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 we worked a lot on, uh, you know, for quite a long time on, on the first draft. I think from, you know, the moment where we sort of sat all together uh, to start the paper to the submission is past either one and a half or two years even. So it took uh, quite a long time to put it together. And um, it kept uh, changing and expanding partly results of presentations. So, you know, we had some preliminary results, maybe from a subset of experiments, the meta-analysis and so on. And we were going around presenting it at various places. We presented this paper to many places, actually. And, um, you know, presentations, sometimes you get suggestions, or why don't you think about this type of model? Uh, this type of design more rarely there's lots of suggestions about models so we're going back work out the predictions for one more model perhaps design new experiments to test it and so on and so it kept going on like this until after a bit you start getting always the same comments or you know you, you see that all the comments you receive somehow you have addressed uh, in some part of the paper and then it's more or less when you when we realize you know this is this is probably done yeah, this 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 was sort of a, a funny project in this respect because normally you have one model and say well, if you think about lab experimental research, you have one model and one lab experiment, and so the, there's a there's a clear bound to the paper. You do the model, you do the the experiment, and then that's it. Here suddenly we we sort of the because the paper grew into oh we have ten models and now we have fifteen models, and wow. suddenly we were able to see, oh, how about we just write down all the models that, that people have suggested and really cover everything. And, and then obviously then, I think in the end, we had like 24 models um, uh, that then becomes sort of pushes the, the project to become bigger. Um, but yeah, but it's, um, yeah, it, it did grow over time. In the end, I think we stopped when the to-do list was empty. I think we didn't really have anything left well, yeah, I suppose in the in in the words of Nelson Mandela, it always seems impossible until it's done. <laughs> and, um, yeah. So uh, I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about the path to publication. So once you decided you'd exhausted um, all of these avenues, like you say, you'd ticked off the to-do list. How did you approach the task of selling the paper to journals, and how did it kind of change as a result of the peer review process? I think this is something that uh, people like myself who um, haven't published in a journal, um, it, it all seems a bit ambiguous uh, as, as uh, we haven't engaged in it. So how did that kind of back and forth look? Well, I think we were lucky that we got accepted by the first journal that we send it to. Normally you get rejected a couple of times and then at some point you, you then the, the paper somewhere accepted and here it worked out in the, in the, in the first instance. We did work quite a lot in the, in the revision. We got very long reports. Um, I think we had five reports plus the editor. Um, they were all positive. So we got five revise and resubmits, but they all had quite a lot of comments, partly because the paper was so bloody long. So uh, so that's not, not, not very surprising in that sense. Um, I think in the peer review process, the biggest change that was to the structure of the paper, it did read a little bit like three separate papers at the beginning. And then we 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 spent quite a lot of time to to integrate it. We sort of generalized the theory so that it now reads much more like one common one common project, um, which yeah, which wasn't really there yet uh, at the beginning. We also added this website that you mentioned, um, which took quite a lot of time, which also wasn't really requested by the by the journal. 
but we thought it would be nice to to open up the the data that we have or the time that we spend on the meta study can we sort of spend some more time on it and 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 make 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 these these results uh, more e easily accessible so that people don't have to read 150 pages they can look at the website play around with it and um, that's much nicer so that was also part of the revision process that came very late in the in the overall process of the paper you mentioned the selling strategy sort of it's mm. i think we were uh, we were sort of worried or we were particularly careful about two things when we were sort of writing the paper um one is you know the meta study there's a danger that when you, you get perceived as someone who just does a little bit of housekeeping, you know, it puts in order the literature and uh, summarizes it nicely, very useful. But when you aim at the top journal, we were a bit worried that maybe this wouldn't be enough. So we were, yeah, we, we were quite careful in trying to sort of minimize that fear and trying to make it more like this. There's more to it than just a, a meta study. And uh, the other thing was, um, you know, we. The, the, all the experiments, the theory, the meta-analysis uh, speak to a specific uh, setup, the, the Fischbacher for me housing setup that uh, Johannes mentioned earlier. So the other thing we were worried about is that this sounds a little bit too lovesy and to you know to focus on an aspect uh, which is a very good testbed for uh, you know studying uh, transmission of uh, reporting of private information. Um, but if it's just perceived as being a love game, um, and all that we are doing speaks to that love game, so that could be a bit dangerous. Um, and so that was the other, uh, uh, that we, especially in the introduction, we tried to um, explain how you know you can go from this uh, stylized setting to lots of other interesting settings that uh, interest economists uh, that are not necessarily just interested in behavior in the lab. Okay, and would would you say those are some of the biggest mistakes that you see other researchers in behavioral science make, either mischaracterizing their paper, as it would have been if you'd um, only emphasized your uh, meta-analysis and not your rigorous theoretical and empirical work? I think it's always it's, it's always in economics it's always a, a little bit of a struggle to find exactly the best way to describe, or as you say, you frame or sell the paper. Um, in a sense, the data is what it is, but the interpretation is a little bit up to is a little bit up to the authors and also to guide the the, the researchers. And I think that in general, I think you want to, or in, in economics, there's a, a there's a payoff to try to um, try to sell or frame the paper in more general terms. So if there's a larger target group, so in our case, you, a smaller target group would be just experimental economists, for example. Um, but if we can write a paper that is interesting to a broader set of, of economists, I think that is always that's very useful for uh, for the chance of publication. Um, but then sometimes people overstate and make a very general claim, which is not backed up by the data. So in a sense, it's a question of how 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 general can you can you make your data appear, or how general is the question that you that you address? And obviously, that's not a that's not a process that starts after you've collected the data. That's a process that starts at the beginning already what is the question that you start out with how general is that how important is that question so it's sort of a it's a but it's something that you come back to not just at the very beginning but also when you write down the paper yeah and i i, I think you know I, I in the papers i refer for example i see um you know people doing sort of overstating and understating at the same in different papers typically so you know sometimes you have papers that make claims 
that uh, you know they they they, they 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 present the paper as if it's speaking to situations that uh, um, that I don't know I don't really agree with, and it seems that uh, it would the paper would be much better off if it would target to a smaller audience, more you know technical uh, and specialized. And on the other hand, sometimes I see papers where I say, oh yeah, this could have been sold much better if uh, you know they would have made this connection with this literature or. Uh, but I agree with you, Agnes, that this is something that is really important to think about at the beginning of, of the research process. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's fine. You just write a paper that is uh, targeted to experimental economics. I, I have quite a few, yeah, a couple of methodological papers that, you know, I say this is interesting for the for experimental economists. So I know that I target it to that and then that's it. But sometimes you might want to write a paper that is of interest to more than experimental economy, but then you really have to think about it at the beginning when, when you're thinking about the research questions. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And it, it, it does speak to that the novelty utility trade-off sometimes when you want your research to be uh, you know, specific enough that it's novel, but general enough that it's useful. So I think, um, and, and perhaps the, um, the notion that you represented a lot of your results online in the very user-friendly preferences for truthtelling.com website. Do you think um, in, in terms of your audience that might have helped you expand the receipt of your research beyond just the academic community? So for example, do you think um, websites such as the one you've set up could help you make a case to organizations such as the Behavioral Insights team in London or the Nudge Unit in terms of getting some of your academic work enacted into a practical policy? And I guess I, I wouldn't normally um, ask these sort of questions had it been just the results of one uh, lab experiment. But since you do consider, you know, almost 100 studies, these results are pretty general and pretty robust. And so there's definitely a place in policy for them, I think. Yeah, I mean, this this was an insight that we had only quite late in the process, actually, after we submitted the paper. Is I think we're, um, is what is the best way to transmit the knowledge that we that we learned from our work? And in 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 research, we always think, oh yeah, this must fit into a PDF file, thirty pages, perhaps hundred pages, but whatever, it has to be written down in a PDF, and that's the way how we communicate. But that is obviously very constraining, because in particular, when you look at the meta study and when you look at the website, I think it's a much much better way to transmit the the lessons or the the insights from the meta study through these interactive graphs that we have on the website compared to the static graphs that we have in the paper or even the text that we have in the paper. So I think if we hadn't been that constrained, and it was our mistake, well not mistake, but that's sort of the tradition. Um, I think if we start from a blank slate, I think we would never have considered a PDF. We would always have started with a website. Um, obviously, yes, you need a PDF to put it in a journal, but in a sense, we could have had the PDF if we had started with this sort of from from the get go. Start with the PDF as a, a brief summary almost, and then say the main chunk is the website, and we almost submit the website to the journal. Obviously, that's not possible at the moment, but I think liberating in this way, I think uh, this opens the the eye to to other ways of communicating and perhaps better ways of communicating insights. Johannes, Daniela. Thank you so much for sharing the details on the um, thought processes and collaborative efforts that led you to produce this very thorough and insightful paper. It's been most valuable to both myself and to all our listeners. And I'd also like to thank our listeners for tuning into this episode of Behavioral Science Uncovered. Please stay tuned for more conversations on behavioral science and how it's made. This is your host, Matthew Henderson, signing off.